Well, about once a year or so, usually not more, I try and preach without a pulpit just to show myself I still can. (laughs) Pulpits are great. They're a little bit like a pacifier or a blankie, though, for us preachers. You just feel good to stand behind one. (laughs) This morning, I just just, um, want to talk to you. If you were here last week and you heard Darren Carlson preach from the book of Ruth about migration and immigration and what God is doing in moments of crisis, um, if that stirred things for you, whether questions about our church, like does our church believe this, or maybe stirred things like could our church do this, I just want you to know we would love to talk to you about that. And the other thing I want to say is that if you're here and you're not from here, I don't have the right words or language for this necessarily, but if you're here and you're an immigrant or a refugee, if English isn't your first language, and to use Darren's language from that sermon last week, and you don't feel like we've seen you, I just want you to know we're sorry, and we would love to do better. That's part of why we had Darren come to help us think better and do better. This morning, we're going to begin our sermon series through the book of Acts. We'll be here for months off and on. If I asked you the question, who made the most significant contribution to the New Testament, who would you say? Paul, Peter, John. If you're being cheeky, you'd say, Jesus, (laughs) and you'd be right. If I said, who made the most significant contribution in terms of the number of verses? Or if I asked the question, who among all the authors of every book or letter was not the only non-Jewish author? Or if I asked the question, who of all of the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, never actually met Jesus while he was alive? Meaning, the way you and I might meet in the foyer. Like, who never met Jesus like that? The answer to all of these is Luke. Luke's two-volume contribution of Luke-Acts is the largest single contribution to the New Testament by any one author. Makes up a quarter of the New Testament. He's the only non-Jewish author We'll talk more about that in a moment. And he's the only one who ever never met Jesus while Jesus was alive in the sense that you and I would meet in a foyer. What he learned, he learned through research and eyewitness interviews. And that's meticulously recorded for us, especially in the book of Acts. The book of Acts begins this way. I'll read the first three verses and then we'll pray that God would be our teacher. Acts chapters 1, verses 1, 2, and 3. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. This is God's word. Thanks be to God for it. I invite you to pray with me as we begin to study it.
Heavenly Father, it's possible as we pick up this very old book, it can feel very old, even if it's printed in a modern typeset in English or on a phone, it can feel like it's from another world. And yet, as we dive into the world of the New Testament this morning, I pray that you would help it to come alive, that you would rivet our attention on the hope of Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. very unlikely thing that I would be standing in front of you holding the book of Acts. That the book of Acts exists is very unlikely. There were so many things stacked against it. It's unlikely that the gospel which begins in Jerusalem would end up in Rome in just a handful of years. There were so many hindrances, so many problems that the early church experienced. And yet, what we read in the, go- the, the gospel, but I, almost, I keep calling it the gospel of Acts, but the book of Acts is the story of the gospel going forward, sometimes despite the hindrances, sometimes around the hindrances, sometimes through the hindrances, in such a way that you could almost say it's going forward without hindrance. It's an unlikely story. I'd love to tell you more about it under three headings. The first is the historian. Second is the hindrances. And the third is the hope. So the, st- the historian, who is it who wrote this book? The hindrances, what were they up against in this book? And then the hope, what is the hope that this book offers to us? So we'll begin with the historian. Helpful metaphor, I think, for the New Testament is a puzzle you've got to put together, but you don't have the box. And I don't mean that the New Testament, God is giving us a puzzle in that sense. But, but it's like a puzzle in that it comes to us slow that you, the story develops as you piece each piece together. And, but we don't have the box. You, know, you, do, you can't look at the box and say, okay, I already know how this looks. You, you develop how it looks by reading the individual pieces. And the picture that develops as you piece it together is sort of like one of those pictures at the Capitol there in Harrisburg. And there's giant murals. It's one picture, but it's made up of lots of little pictures. And this puzzle, as I'm describing it, some of the pieces are larger. Like one story comes in and it's just, man, that, that's the whole piece, right? It's a giant piece. That's a story. That's an event. That's a, some people. And yet there are other, they're not even sizes. There are some details and events and stories and names and places that are smaller. They're like, what's this little yellow piece over here and this little yellow piece over here and this yellow, like, do they fit together? Are they a flower? Are they the sun? Are they the taxi? What is this yellow piece? The person of Luke is sort of like those little yellow pieces. That you have to sort of, there's, there's smaller little details, but when you piece them together, something really neat emerges about who this historian Luke was. So I want to show you some of these pieces. So the first place to start is really at the beginning. You can flip there if you want, but it'll be on the screen. The beginning of the Gospel of Luke Volume 1, if you will, the story of Jesus and then the story of the early church. That's his two volumes. He begins his gospel like this. These are the first four verses. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile 
a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Now that's a mouthful. But essentially he's saying, there's this guy Jesus, people are talking about him, and I want you, Theophilus, to have certainty about who Jesus is. So I researched this. I think Theophilus, I mean, we we don't know for sure, but there's one proposal that's been put forth, and I think it's a good one, is that Theophilus was a Greek wealthy patron who bankrolled Luke's research, gave him a research grant, if you will. And so he used it and he studied and he interviewed people like Mary and Peter and got to know the story of the gospel. I want to flip over to Acts chapter 16, verse 10. Acts chapter 16, verse 10 is significant because it's in the Bible, <laughs> but also because it uses two words for the first time in the, go- or in the book of Acts that are significant for the conversation we're having here. Acts chapter 16, verse 10, when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on to Macedonia. We sought. Concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. You see, previously, up to chapter 16, verse 9, I guess we would say, it's been Peter did this, Paul did that, and here in this verse, are what are called the we passages, W-E. The we passages, like Luke the author, is in the story. He's going there. He's doing that. And he shows up for a little while, and then he drops out, and then he comes back in, and he's there all the way to the end of the book of Acts. So that's one piece of the puzzle. Two more. Colossians chapter 4. Colossians is a letter that the apostle Paul wrote to a church in Colossae. And in chapter 4, it's the last chapter of that letter. And as Paul does often at the end of his letters, he's addressing some of his friends and people, mentioning people who are with him, mentioning people he's writing to, saying, you know, greet so-and-so, encourage so-and-so, you two stop fighting. (laughs) He does that in Philippians. Colossians chapter 4, verses 10 and 11, we read, Artaxerxes, my fellow prisoner, so Paul's in jail at this point, Um, He goes in and out at different times. Artaxerxes, my fellow prisoner, greets you. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instruction. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice. Now, this isn't Jesus, the Jesus that (laughs) the Bible's about. This is a different guy who took his name. And then we read, These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God. And they have been a comfort to me. In other words, these are the only Jewish people who are with me at this point. And then if you let your eyes fall down to verse 14, we read, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does this guy named Demas. So what do we learn from this puzzle piece? He's a physician. A beloved physician. He's in there tight with the Apostle Paul. They know each other well. And he's not Jewish. All these guys are Jewish. They're with me. And then the rest of them are not Jewish, he says in Colossians chapter 4. One more puzzle piece. Second Timothy chapter 4. Second Timothy is 
In all likelihood, the last letter that the Apostle Paul wrote, just days or perhaps weeks before he was martyred. Second Timothy is the second letter he wrote to a young pastor named Timothy. It's heartfelt. It's warm. It's sober. Second Timothy chapter 4, verses 9, 10, 11 go like this. Do your best to come to me soon, Timothy. For Demas, that guy that was just mentioned in Colossians, by the way, in love with the present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Now, these other two didn't desert for the same reason. But he says, Cretans has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. You can see these puzzle pieces starting to emerge. Three years ago, when we began our sermon series through the Gospel of Luke, Volume 1, the story of Jesus, and then Volume 2, the story of the early church. Um, maybe half of you were here, perhaps. Um, and I did this thing where I just said, if Luke could come and talk to us, what would he say? And some of you, perhaps many of you, told me how helpful that was. And so I just want to do that same thing, ask that same question. So I've, I've got glasses here. <laughs> so forgive my Clark Kentish uh, stick here, but like Luke was a doctor. Smart people have glasses. Doctors are smart. I have these glasses. So I put them on. What, what would Luke say to us? So just five, eight minutes. How would Luke tell us his story in his own words? If you piece together more of the New Testament, what would he say? So I think he would say, My name is Lucas. I'm a physician. Or at least I was a physician. Most people know me today as a historian. You might just know me as Luke. The year was A.D. 67. And in A.D. 67, Nero, Claudius Caesar Augustus Germanicus, was and had been emperor for 13 years. And the winter was coming soon. And I... I was in prison with the Apostle Paul. Together we wrote a letter to Timothy, a young pastor. He's pastoring a church in Ephesus. And Timothy's father was a Greek, just like both of my parents. Together in that jail cell we wrote. And even in the early years of Paul's ministry, he could write to the churches in Galatia that he bore on his body the marks of Jesus. By that he meant that his physical body bore the marks of persecution that he had received for following Jesus. And as a physician, let me tell you, that was an understatement. His wounds were frequent and severe. And near the end, well, even before the end, he could not fully stand erect. That's what happens to you when your back is beaten repeatedly so many times that it becomes one giant open sore. Then you're thrown to the ground in the dust and the dirt. And then you pick yourself up and hobble home or more likely your friends pick you up and bring you to their home. There's no neosporin, no antibiotics, no modern medicine. 
And you spend the next few days drifting in and out of consciousness as your body fights off fever infection. Let me assure you that when Paul says he bore on his body the marks of Jesus Christ, that was no understatement. But let me back up. My profession trained me to observe how to look, how to interpret, how to record, how to relook, reinterpret, and re-record. And as I did this among suffering people, I learned one thing. People always avoid suffering. I lived in the middle portion of the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, and we had as an ideal, although few could attain to this, that we should avoid suffering at all costs. So if there was work to be done, better to direct the labor than to do the labor. And if there were wars to be fought, better to direct the wars rather than fight in them. Which is why upwards of 50% of the Roman Empire at various times was slaves, were slaves. So we could outsource our own suffering. It was a decadent and indulgent culture. In this way, it was probably not too far from your own. Where the good life drives cars that don't break, has computers that never malfunction and bodies that don't decay and treasures things that shine, the good life. When I first met Paul, it was 20 years or so out from the resurrection, so roughly 52 AD. Paul was traveling through Troas, which is in Asia, it's 100 miles north of Ephesus. Paul was on his second missionary journey, but to be clear, as Paul was traveling through Troas, Paul never really just traveled through anywhere. The last major city he was in, Lystra, he was stoned and left for dead. <laughs> anyway, Paul and I, we sailed the same ship back across Samothrace to Macedonia. And while he was there, I cared for him and treated his wounds, which had healed but poorly. But what was odd about Paul? It was very odd, is that he seemed to be moving towards suffering. As we traveled and I attended to him, he told me how he had been raised in the scriptures, brought up under the very best religious teachers, and how originally he had persecuted those who followed the way, as it was called, those who followed Jesus. And in doing so, he was, as he was persecuting Christians, he's traveling to this city called Damascus. He's on his horse, and this bright, blinding, piercing light knocks him off his horse. And, and then the lights came on, so to speak. He understood what he called the gospel, how in past times God had chosen to overlook sins, not fully punishing it, but instead storing, God was storing up his wrath against sin and cr- laying it on the Messiah. That's what Paul said happened when Jesus was crucified. Now, I didn't know at the time much about Messiahs. But this was foolishness to me. This was crazy. Messiahs don't suffer. Messiahs don't die. Well, I watched Paul minister in Neapolis and in Philippi, and I saw him speak so gently, even with women. There was this businesswoman named Lydia who became a Christian. It's very prominent. After that, I didn't see Paul again, though, for five years. He continued on, and I stayed behind. But when I saw him again, he hadn't gotten any younger, as they say. 
His wounds and his sufferings he had experienced were more significant. But this time when I linked back in with him, I stayed with him until the end. And I'm leaving things out, but eventually we made it back to Jerusalem. And when we got to Jerusalem, there's no small commotion about Paul this time. There's this man who's defiling the Jewish religion and changing their customs, they say. Of course, these were only half-truths. I don't have time to go into detail, but this great chain of events were put into motion because of this controversy about the temple and who Paul did or didn't bring in there with him. But, but what I want you to know is at any point, Paul could have stopped it. He could have stopped the suffering, stopped the imprisonment, stopped the beatings, even stopped the shipwreck. But he kept pressing into suffering. Paul appeared to governors and kings about the, how the light of God had touched him even appealing to Caesar. And that's where I end the book of Acts with Paul in prison waiting to appeal to Caesar. Eventually, Paul got out, but not for very long. The persecution under Nero intensified. There was this fire in Rome and the question of who to blame it on. Nero chose Christians. He chose us. And he lit us like torches at parties, dressed us in wild animal skins and fed us to wild animals. The Apostle Paul went back into jail. And there in prison, this man who had lived for others was alone. Well, not alone. I was there. But sleep was sporadic. Every time he moved, he was in pain. His suffering abounded. But so did his hope. Together, he wrote to Timothy these words. Therefore, Timothy, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. But share in suffering for the gospel. For Jesus abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, which is why I suffer as I do, Paul wrote. You see, not only did Paul not avoid suffering, but he seemed, again, to be moving towards it. But not only did he move towards suffering, but he seemed to have a certainty about it as he did. I think he did that. Because he was certain that Jesus had moved towards suffering for him. That's what I wanted Theophilus to know. That's what I would want you to know. I don't know... (laughs) Exactly what Luke would say if he could come here and talk with us. We have a a high view of Scripture here at our church. And so when this manuscript goes online in a couple days, there'll be 25 footnotes that show where every little paragraph and every little phrase came from, at least most of them. But when you piece together the picture of the New Testament, that's who this historian Luke is. Now, the picture of this historian Luke emerges. I want to transition. If that's the historian, what about the hindrances? If we go into the book of Acts, what was this early church? What was the gospel up against? And the answer is many things. It's an unlikely book, as I said. First one, just to name a few of them here, is just human sin and depravity. They were up against what we're up against. This was a hindrance. And one way to show that would be to go to this passage in Acts chapter 2. 
Peter's preaching a sermon here at this point, and he's standing up speaking to, we could say, the most well put together, the most religious, the most pious people imaginable. They they have gathered across the nations to stream to Jerusalem to hear and, and to celebrate the law of God. Now, if you travel across the world to celebrate the law of God, you have some things together. And yet a theme that emerges across these early churches that even the most well put together person needs to repent. Because in light of a holy God, we are sinners all. So here's a little snippet of that sermon. We'll come to it in a few weeks. But Acts chapter 2, verses 22, 23, 24. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up, now delivered up is like codename for crucifixion, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. By the hands of lawless men. You outsourced this to the Romans. You need to repent, he goes on to say. That's amazing. What are other hindrances that the early church experienced? There were many. One is the collision of cultures. As the gospel goes forth and makes the church a family, the people of God, brothers and sisters in Christ, it's wonderful. It's also the collision of cultures. There in Acts chapter 2, the nations are gathering. It sounds really great. The nations are here. All right, that's great. Let's all get together. Except that's really hard. It's not as easy as it sounds. And not only is there collisions of cultures within Christianity, but there's the collision of culture with Christianity and the rest of the world. There's the pluralistic Roman society, and there's the backdrop of the Jewish faith and people, the soil that Christianity's growing out of. Just to give you one example, Acts chapter 6, verse 7 is a fascinating verse. Luke records, and the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. Oh, great. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. A great many of the priests became Christians. Why is that so significant? If you read through the book of Luke, you're not seeing that coming. Hard-hearted, obstinate rebellion and uh, is about all you get. About, there's some exceptions, but about all you get. And then there's this glimmer of hope, which again sounds wonderful, except for priests to become obedient to the faith, for priests to become Christians, you realize that's going to cause collisions of cultures. Well, there's this other question of converts. It's not a hindrance to have new converts by any means. Not at all. But it was challenging. There were issues. There's just the sheer number of them. When Peter preaches in chapter 2, 3,000 people become Christians. What do you do with 3,000 people that weren't there last week? 3,000 people come to this church, great, but I don't know where they're going to (laughs) go. And then there's the challenge of, when you've got people new to the faith, there's all sorts of questions. That's a wonderful thing. First and second Thessalonians that we studied all summer, they're just full of questions. This little group of believers in a city of 100,000 people in a port City Thessalonica in the midst of the capital of Macedonia. They're susceptible to false teachers. They've got questions. And how do you preach? And how do you lead a church when they've got people who've been Christians five, or 25 years and some who've been Christians 25 minutes? 
And then there's the question of, okay, so you got Christians here and it's great, this is new. Can we trust them? Especially this one guy, Saul, also called Paul. He used to persecute us. What do we do with him? That's a hindrance. And then there's also the challenge of deep divides. Perhaps we could call it racism even. You see, in chapter 6 there, I read that verse about the priests becoming obedient to the faith, but the previous six verses, there's a story some of you will be familiar with. The apostles are preaching and teaching. There's Christian, people are becoming Christians. That's great. But then there's this question of food and how are the people going to get food if we're hanging out and spending time together where there's food and shelter. And so these very practical things that are important. And so they have what are called, well, they don't call them there in this passage deacons, but we think that's what's going on there. And they're going to care for the practical needs of the church. That's great. But I don't, I wonder if you know this, that it wasn't just everybody who wasn't getting food. It was a subset. It was the non-Jewish Christians. The Jewish Christians were getting their food. Hmm. What was that about? You flip over a couple chapters, and in chapters 9 and 10, we hear Peter speaking to this man Cornelius, a a, a Gentile, a a soldier of sorts, and he, he and his family become Christians. But in the process... Peter says some very offensive things, some wonderful things about the gospel. He also says some very offensive things, things that culturally were offensive because he he had to grow, he had to learn. And just to give you one very particular case, if you flip over to chapter uh, 22, at this point Paul is a Christian and he's standing up and he's preaching and it's to a largely Hebrew audience, a Jewish audience. Peter's preaching to this Hebrew audience. Excuse me, I keep saying Peter. Paul's preaching here. And as Paul's preaching... They're listening to him. They're like, we're with you, Paul. Okay, okay. You're talking in our language. You're telling a Jewish story. You're saying some offensive things, but we're tracking. Look at verse 22. And he, that's God said to me, me being Paul, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. So Peter's preaching. He's telling a story. They're with you. We're with you. You're saying some hard things. And all right, maybe we can ball it. And then he says this about the Gentiles. Verse 22. Up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth. For he should not be allowed to live. The line between Jews and Gentiles was sharp. That's a hindrance. They had overcome it. Sounds contemporary in different ways, doesn't it? And then we come to this hindrance of persecution, right? Right here, right here there's the kind of persecution that's like, you're going to die. <laughs> and we're going to kill you. And then there's a the persecution of just, we're going to laugh at you. So Acts chapter 2, Peter gets up to preach and Sort of a crazy scene. We'll get to it in a few weeks. Uh, but Peter and the other disciples, they're, they're preaching. And they're like, these guys are drunk. And Peter's like, it's 9 a.m. It's first service. They're not drunk. <laughs> That's what he says. That's his line. He didn't say first service. He says it's 9 a.m. They're not drunk. And then Acts chapter 17, uh, Paul's Christian at this point. He stands up in, it's called the Areopagus. He's in Athens. So the well-to-do, high society, the intellectual elites. He stands up in that society, proclaims the gospel, and they laugh. I mean, some are like, we'll listen to you more. Others are like, you're crazy. We're going to laugh at you. All these hindrances and more. Christianity is a minority, so to speak. 
And then there's the question of the miraculous. What, like, it's not normal when some dude who can't walk all of a sudden can walk. Like, don't look back in the first century like, yeah, miracles happened all the time. They were dumb people and they, they weren't acquainted with these things and they believed in fairies and miracles. They did not. When someone rises from the dead, they're like, that's, not, that's strange. They had to figure that out. They didn't have categories for these things. There's a transition of leaders. Jesus, of course, and other transitions. So, all this makes me think, what about our own context? What hindrances do we have here among us? I think there are many. There's human depravity, just like they had, we have. We have our own sin to reckon with. There are suffering people among us. You're not a hindrance if you're suffering, but that's a challenge. How do we care for each other well when people are hurting? There's a transition of pastors that happened recently. We're looking to hire a new one. It's a hindrance. There's spiritual apathy in some pockets of our church. Spiritual apathy in a land of unprecedented gospel resources. In a time of unprecedented knowledge. Where's the boldness? Where's the zeal? Where's the passion? Where's the fire? Where's the conversions? Where's the preaching? The thinness of leaders. New converts. The collision of cultures. The desire to plant churches and the scarcity of resources. And then I can just say on a personal note, only a few of you know this, you all know it now. Um, On Friday, I'm going to have a shoulder surgery. So like forever ago, I won't go to the details. Hurt my shoulder. Bench pressing a lot of weight. Just picture a lot of weight. Um, and I've been hurt, semi-hurt for a while. Church softball got me. <laughs> Silly church softball. Um, and so I've been putting it off. I'm going to have it next Friday. So I don't want to be too graphic, but it's reconstruction of pectoralis major with a graft, <laughs> which basically means they're going to give me a dead guy's tendon. <laughs> And I've been wondering, the joke at my house has been, am I, like, uh, I going to get a you know, CrossFit legend tendon? Or uh, is, it, is it, well, let's just say a, a barely used tendon. I don't, um, I don't think I get to choose, right? <laughs> I, I'm going to get what I get. Um, but I feel that as a hindrance for the next six to ten weeks. I'm, you're going to see me in a sling. Uh, someone told me first service, they, I know this person, they had a similar thing happen last year. And I'll be on narcotics for a while, so... Look forward to that. Um, I'm not preaching next week um, on narcotics. I I hope to be here. Um, My friend Alex is going to come preach Acts chapter 1. I feel this is a hindrance. I don't know about you. Um, Six months of PT. I was doing premarital counseling with this guy who does physical therapy. Just recently got married and we were talking about this. He said, uh, the doctor told me, yeah, 12 months you'd be feeling good. My friend looks at me, he's like, yeah, 16 Anyway, I, I, just, I, I say that to say, what about you? You have your own hindrances. Job things, family things, life things, health things, I don't know. Things that you feel as hindrances to the gospel going forward in your life and your family. Well, let's not just dwell on our hindrances. Let, let's end with the hope very briefly. I want to take you to the last verse of the last chapter 
of the book of Acts. So flip there if you want, or it'll be on the screen in just a moment. I want to read these verses here in context, verses 30 and 31. Luke narrates, he, that's Paul, lived there, that's Rome, two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Without hindrance. Does that seem strange to you? I mean, you don't have to look very far. You just look in this chapter and you think, there are hindrances everywhere. In chapter 28, there's a shipwreck. And the shipwreck and the storm that they experienced was so severe, they crash on an island and they have to be told which island, professional fishermen have to be told which island they crashed on. They land on the island. Paul gets bitten by a poisonous snake. He gets out of that predicament. And then he goes into Rome, in jail, and he's under house arrest At his own expense. He's got to bankroll his own ministry while you're in jail. Which I don't even know how you do. And yet the final word in a book that is structured in a highly literary format. It's no coincidence that the last word ends without hindrance. Because what Luke is saying then and now is that sometimes despite, sometimes around, sometimes through all these hindrances. It could be said to say that the gospel is going forth without hindrance. I have a friend named John who who recently wrote a short little article and he created this little metaphor. So the title of his, his post, I got to look at it, was Why Not to Floss Before You Go to Church? And this is, he sets up this contrast between going to the dentist and going to a a mechanic. And he says that when he, and I, I found this to be true in my own life, perhaps you find it true, when you go to the dentist, like you brush your teeth, you use mouthwash, you don't drink coffee that morning, even if you don't floss, you start flossing the previous week so that when they ask you, have you been flossing? You're like, oh yeah, all, all week. <laughs> but when you go to the mechanic, Well, I'll just, in his own words, John says, when I go to the car shop, I go messy. I go honest. I hope that they hear the squeak I keep hearing. I don't know anything about cars, and I hope that the mechanic can fix the problem. I know I sure can't. So that's his metaphor for how to come to church. More like a, a garage, more like a mechanic. And, and I think he can do that because, he can say that what he says there, because Christianity, in a very unique and beautiful way, allows us to be completely honest. And yet to be full of hope. Because if you go back to chapter 1, and Alex We'll have to be here to preach it. But if you go back to chapter 1, what we read is that the Savior who lived and died rose and ascended to the throne of the universe. And from the throne of the universe, He pours out the Holy Spirit to work among the church to help us be the types of people that God wants us to be. And He promises to come again. And it's my hope this morning to introduce you to that story that we're going to spend the next year or so 
looking at in more detail. And I hope this morning that whatever's going on in your life, for a moment, God might blow away those clouds and help you to see the hope of Jesus Christ. I'm going to pray and invite the worship team to come up and close us in one more song. Would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, it's possible to romanticize the early church, to think about it with rose-colored glasses as though everything was wonderful. There was preaching and then there was conversions. There was sickness and then there was healings. And yet for all the healings the Apostle Paul gave out, so to speak, through your power, he had his own healings that weren't healed. Excuse me, his own need for healing that didn't get healed. Peter had to preach to 3,000 people and then he had to go home and love his wife and children in the mundane. They lived in a sense where we live. But their hope is our hope, Lord, in the gospel. And so I pray for this morning, I pray for my friends that are here, that we would be enabled to see the way the Apostle Paul saw, the way Luke saw, the way his life was changed by the gospel. Would you change our lives? We pray this in Jesus' name.